You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. Hey, Robert. How are you doing today? I'm good, Holly. How are you? I am doing well. I am so, so excited and honored by our guest's presence today. I'm just Mm. grateful for this conversation that we are about to have. Um, So for our listeners um, who are like, who is it? Who do y'all have on for today? Uh, We are blessed to have Suzanne Stabile joining us today. Um, She is an internationally renowned teacher. Uh, She directs retreats and offers a unique and creative approach to the practice of spiritual formation. She's a master teacher of the Enneagram and draws upon her educational background at Southern Methodist University, as well as her life skills learned as a mother of four, a social worker, which makes my heart very happy, (laughs) and a minister spouse. Her refreshing teaching style is an unforgettable blend of humor, honesty, and authenticity. And she and her husband, Joseph, are the founders of Life in the Trinity Ministry, and the Micah Center in Dallas, Texas. She's she's also the author of several books that we're going to talk about today, including The Road Back to You, The Path Between Us, and The Journey Toward Wholeness. Suzanne, welcome to the show. We're just so, so honored and grateful to have you here today. Yeah. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. I I am mindful after hearing you uh, say all those lovely things about me that I'm going to need to cut my bio back a bit. <laughs> I think it is a lovely bio. Well, thank you. I, I, It just occurs to me, I don't ever look at it, and adding things on one end might mean you need to take some things off of the other end. Oh, man. Isn't that always it's, the wrestle? It's yeah. It's awkward when somebody reads it out loud, right? You yeah. have to sit there and listen. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. I started to get very uncomfortable. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was not at all my intention. I know that. (laughs) I know that. It just feels like a lot. Yeah. Well, it's good work that you've done for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I know it was a very comprehensive bio. And if there was anything that I missed in there that you want our listeners to know about you, um, yeah, we'd love to hear. The only thing I would say is that um, coaching women's college basketball as the first coach after title nine. Um, Mm. that was a big learning curve for me. It was a life stream, but it was also a time when there were lots of battles that had to be won Mm -hmm. on behalf of women's sports and the future of women's sports and all those things. And I learned a lot about group dynamics, which I think played into my interest in the Enneagram when I first encountered it. There Hmm. seems to continue for me to be a connection to my love for the Enneagram and my love in those days for coaching. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, speaking since you brought up the Enneagram, I'm going to springboard right from that space. Um, So those who are um, familiar, many of our listeners, I would say, who are familiar with the Enneagram, I am certain have come across you and your work. And so they, I would imagine, are really excited to get to hear from you on this show, um, knowing that you've been in several other shows talking about your work. In fact, I've really loved that you've adopted this posture as the Enneagram godmother that I saw on your site. And it is so reflective of your heart for this work and for others and trying to help others um, through this work, or at least that's been my experience um, and what I have seen in the ways that you've guided and led others in, with this wisdom. Now, I didn't. I didn't do that. Like, we didn't name me that. <laughs> I was about to I ask. I was, was going yeah. to say, this ask. is not like a self-identified, I am the Enneagram no. godmother. But <laughs> Yeah, no. Somebody else did that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> after we saw it several times, we just decided to pick to go with it. Well, and it, I think, um, yeah. I think it fits. But I, I, I would have never said, oh, I think I'm this. 
No, I hear you. I hear yeah, you a hundred percent. Yes. No, but it is, I think it is a, a, a really good, um, it's a good phrase to capture your posture towards this work, I think. So now that said, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the, your backstory into this work with the Enneagram, like just some of what has brought you to the Enneagram in the first place. Okay. It's kind of a, a fun and very unique story. Um, I suppose most people who know my work, uh, which surely wouldn't be all of your listeners, but a lot of people know that I'm married to a former Catholic priest. And um, he really never planned on leaving the priesthood. And um, I was a single mom with three children, and I really never planned on marrying again. And we ended up um, working together. And, um, it was an opportunity for Joe who went to seminary at 14 and was with the Vincentian fathers for the next 26 years and left the priesthood at 40. And, um, it was an opportunity for him to teach about his understanding of the move from the Catholic church to where it was before Vatican II through Vatican II and what it was becoming after Vatican II. And our work was for him to work with a layperson to teach about Vatican II and the opening of doors for lay people to have a bigger voice and um, more important space in the Catholic Church. So we traveled around the country and taught in Catholic churches. And during that time, we became very good friends, and we also had some significant spiritual experiences. And after uh, a big story that is too long to tell, Joe decided to leave the priesthood. He called and asked me out on a date, which was very weird. It was his first date, and he was 40. Mm. Um, It was uh, awkward (laughs) Mm. and lovely. And... um, it just turned out that we believe looking back, God somehow made space for us to find each other. I can't explain that, but you know, that's just part of our faith experience. And, um, we ended up excommunicated from the Catholic church and had a bunch of experience talking about what we believed in for people and, We didn't know exactly what to do. And um, after we married and had another baby, he adopted my three children and we had a fourth. And after a time of trying to figure out life, he decided that we needed to try to talk to somebody who had had some similar experiences to ours. So he cold called Father Richard Rohr. And, oh my goodness! Um, said mm. this is who I am, and my wife and I would like to come see you. And wow. so we set a date, and we went to Albuquerque, and we met with Father Roar, and he has been a spiritual mentor and confessor and spiritual leader for us and teacher since. Mm. And the second time we were with him, he said, uh, "Suzanne, I think I've got something you might be interested in," and he handed me a manuscript of a book of his that was about to be published. And we were at a point then where we were meeting with him once a month and um, I devoured it and it was Enneagram. And I went back and said, I want more. And he said, I thought you might. And he encouraged me to study the Enneagram for five years without talking about it. And I did. That's such and, a good challenge. Yeah. To, to yeah. tell someone, study this thing and don't try and automatically turn it into something or become like an expert. And maybe I'm thinking of, you know, modern day where people are like, I studied this thing once. Now I'm, I have a new Instagram account where I'm an expert, but, you know, study this five years. Don't talk about it. That's such a, a good way of doing it, I think. I think so too. And I, you know, I'm a little surprised that I did it. I'm a talker and I love the Enneagram. But I trusted him and Joe. And I think that's the reason that I'm 
in a position to speak to the Enneagram in relation to the rest of our lives, in relation yeah. to all the work that we do and have done. Yeah. It, it's helpful literally to everyone. And I don't know that I would know that if I hadn't been holding what I was learning and observing people in many different situations at the same time. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I know that I've heard you talk about how Father Richard was the one who kind of introduced you to the Enneagram, but I don't know that I had heard the backstory about how that was connected to you and Joe. And um, so that's that's really sweet. He and Joe have very similar stories. Um, mm. They're just different orders of priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Father Rohr is a Franciscan and Joe was a Vincentian, but they both went to high school seminary at 14. They, they both have a, a lot in common. Wow. Mm, yeah. I love that so much. And he is so gracious that he made all kinds of space for us. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, me too. Well, I know uh, episodes 38 and 39 of the show uh, back April 2018, I think, which feels like forever ago now. I know. A couple lifetimes ago, I probably. I know. <laughs> Uh, but those featured one of, I think, one of your apprentices, Dr. John Singletary, who taught us some about the Enneagram. And there was, we've done a couple other Enneagram-centric episodes, but, and almost all of them, I think, end up pointing to you at some point, right? As maybe the, the Enneagram uh-huh. god, godmother that, that we <laughs> talked about. But um, so I'll, I'll throw back and we'll, we'll link all of those in the show notes for folks that want to, to go back and do maybe a, a deep dive. But we also want to give you some space as as from you with your unique voice maybe to uh, talk a little bit maybe pretty briefly on the different types what like what what's important about each one as as a way of kind of setting the stage for the rest of the conversation i think i'm going to talk about the different types in terms of triads that's perfect that actually Um, moves us right into the yeah okay well i'm going to do that perfect um and i'm going to start with eights that's the number i start with when i teach and so i'm going to and when I write, so I'm going to start there. Eights, nines, and ones are in the anger triad. Eights are the number on the Enneagram that has the most energy. Nines are the number that have the least energy. And um, they all share in common uh, completely different motivation, but they're all managing anger in one way or another. Eight anger is straight up and then it's over and eights move on. Nine anger is passive aggressive, and one anger is um, usually turned in on themselves first, and so it, it's it's just really tricky. It's resentment instead of straight up anger, and it's difficult to deal with. The gifts of each are that eights are really good leaders. They get a lot done. They get a lot done fast. They're smart and they're quick, and. Nines are great leaders. They're very thoughtful. They think through everything first, and their gift is that they see two sides to everything. And the gift in ones is that they have a strong desire to do things correctly. And all three of those gifts are highly valued. The difficulty is that uh, in terms of the centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, and doing, Eights are feeling repressed, and nines are doing repressed, and ones are thinking repressed. And that simply means that they don't uh, feel, think, or do productively. Hmm. Going around from there, twos, threes, and fours are in the feeling triad or the relationship triad. However, it's also sometimes called the heart triad and the feeling triad, and they um, struggle with feelings. I want to back up because I should have said about eights, nines, and ones that they're the gut triad, and they read the world intuitively, literally in their bellies. They walk in a room, and they know if there's trouble and when something's wrong and when somebody's dishonest and who they can't trust and all those things. So back to twos, threes, and fours um, in the feeling triad. Twos are called the helper on the Enneagram, and that's because they – easily sense and read the needs of other people and they like to respond to that by doing something 
which makes them helpful to the point of being potentially manipulative. And it also um, makes them helpful to the point that it can truly be exhausting. Threes are, along with sevens and eights, leading lots of organizations and businesses. They're called aggressive numbers, and threes are um, gifted. In the Enneagram, we say that the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And the best part of threes is that they're able to morph into whatever kind of person the situation asks for. And that's lovely and very problematic at the same time. And fours, uh, there are fewer fours than any other number. On the Enneagram, they're the most complex, and they are the people who uh, we'd like to have beside us at times when the veil is very thin. They are the only number that can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. If you pull them all together in the feeling triad, then the reality is that twos feel other people's feelings and not their own. Threes take in information with feelings, but they don't make sense of or decide what to do with that information using feelings. And fours don't like average feelings, so they would rather be really happy or really sad, all of which is fairly messy. If you keep coming around to five, six, seven, that's called the head triad or the thinking triad. Uh, while eights have the most energy and nines have the less, the least, fives have a measured amount of energy. They have the same amount of energy every day when they wake up. And any encounter they have with another human being throughout the day costs them energy. And so they appear to be aloof and distant usually, but it's because they're trying to get back to the safety of their space or their home before they run out of energy because the vulnerability of that is really tricky for them. And uh, this is also called the fear triad. And fives manage their fear by gathering information. Unfortunately, information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. And uh, gathering information is also very addictive. And lots of fives tend to be introverted. So it's a way to pull back rather than participate. There are more sixes, I think, than any other number on the Enneagram. And sixes are scanning the horizon for danger. They uh, are assigned by Enneagram wisdom the sin or passion of fear, but a better word for that is anxiety because sixes are very concerned about possible future events. On the other hand, sixes are the number on the Enneagram that's the most concerned about the common good, and that's helpful. Sevens are the most interesting number in some ways to me because they present as being the life of the party and not particularly deep. And when they go deep, it's very deep. I've taught a lot at Baylor. You all uh, talked about John Singletary. I started teaching for, I taught twice a year at least at Baylor for a number of years at Baylor University. And I found out from teaching there that Baylor students who were sevens on the Enneagram, when I would come back for an advanced workshop and they came and they were always interested in uh, the deeper and darker side of things. Like they... Oh, interesting. Yep. One guy came up to me and said, "Can, can you tell me in terms of Joan of Arc, what would be worth being burned at the stake? Huh. Different year, different guy said to me, Uh, Do you think you'd be willing to die for your faith? When they go deep, they go very deep. But they're usually the life of the party and fun and lighthearted. And they're the number that other people are least likely to be supportive for change in their lives where they go deeper and don't lean so heavy into being funny and clever and those things. Hmm. And... In dealing with fear, sixes manage fear with worst-case scenario planning. They think of the worst thing that could happen and make a plan for it, and then they feel better, and then they do that over and over. And sevens just create a smokescreen of activity and avoid fear 
by jumping from thing to thing. Mm. Well, first of all, gold stars for being able to synthesize that as quickly. I know that that's a lot of information um, to cover about each of the numbers, and there is so much more to it. Um, So I'm sure that there's a degree that it's really difficult probably to try to synthesize it because there's just so much more. So, But I wanted to give at least a little bit of a taste for our listeners who are not familiar with the Enneagram to kind of get a a little bit of an idea of how we show up in the world in these nine different ways Um, and how it's not just us, but it's the people around us who are viewing the world in very and experiencing and moving through it in very different ways. The Enneagram is is actually about nine ways of seeing. Yeah. Mm. And one of the reasons that I'm not a big fan of what I call trendy Enneagram is um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you can't, you you really cannot identify your Enneagram number taking a test. Uh, The best one is the Rizzo and Hudson test, which you have to pay for and take online. And Russ Hudson's a friend of mine, and he knows I think his is the best, and he knows that I don't like tests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the reason that I think tests are problematic is because your Enneagram number is determined by motivation for behavior and not by behavior. And rarely do we know someone else's motivation. Hmm. No, that's that's good. I mean, as somebody who teaches measurement within the school social work, you are right. Like, it's very hard to actually measure motivation, um, especially when there's lots of layers of subconscious reasons for Mm -hmm. why we do what we do that you can't even articulate to respond on a test with. So I've really appreciated that approach over the years and how you have emphasized the narrative. I know when I – when I had first come across it, actually it was John had shared your Know Your Number CDs with me that I would listen to on the way to and from work. And I remember for me, it was like learning the eight and being like, oh yeah. And then, you know, I see some of me in that and then going around and hearing one and seeing some of myself in that. And then two was like, there was a wrestle with that. And then- And our listeners know that I identify with type two, um, but then noticing the connection with three and four, but it wasn't until I understood how the lines connected that I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense that I'm in two space. So, yeah. Holly, for our listeners, do you want to explain what a CD is for our younger? <laughs> That's great. That's right. I know. That's how long ago it was. No. <laughs> It was in, I mean, it was back in, it was right when I first started at Baylor um, because, you know, I really respected John and I wanted to learn more about it because I could see he cared about it and lots of other folks did. And, but that was in fall of 2014. So back when cars actually had CD players in them. (laughs) Yeah. Just so you know, there are cassettes. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm old. I'm old, guys. (laughs) I've been doing this a long time and I'm old. Well, we, um, I mean, I, I just have so loved, like I was saying, I've loved how, you know, you've really taught this with the narrative approach rather than, you know, and you're really good about making sure that this isn't just a party trick conversation or anything, but that this is that guide for that inner work that we're invited to do for each of us. So, you know, I'm, um, I, I taught at Baylor Hospital here in Dallas for a while, and I'm back doing that again. Mm. And it's fascinating to to consider, and this is just a good example of that, to consider the ways that the Enneagram is helpful and how different they are in different scenarios. So I hmm. I will give you two examples from working in the hospital. I have pretty well figured out a way to teach chaplains to ask certain questions to find out what stance people are in. And if you visit a patient for three to four days in a row, then it would be possible to know what stance they're in. And and triads are determined by which of the three centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, or doing is dominant. But stances uh, are centered around which one is repressed. And if if you know the stance, 
then it changes how you respond to a patient. Hmm. And it's much better for the chaplain and it's much better for the patient. But then if I go work in physical therapy, people who are in physical therapy in a hospital setting have a lot of really painful hard work to do. And they have to be motivated to do it. And you, my daughter Joey and I are very much alike. She teaches the Enneagram all over the country. She teaches in corporate America. We look alike. We're, we're a lot alike. She's an eight and I'm a two, but we're a lot alike. And you cannot motivate me the same way you would motivate her. You would have to be willing to know about my family and my children and my grandchildren, how much I love Joe, in order to get me to perform for you. And Joey would not want to give you any of that information. So um, then that's a different way that the Enneagram is used in physical therapy. I'm going to give you one more example. When I first started teaching there, I, I started in the transplant hospital. And it was at a time when uh, there, the registry was not what it is now. And people uh, were waiting for an organ. And if they got it, then they needed to do surgery quickly and all those things. Well, that caused stress in all the numbers of the surgical team because things happened fast. And then they behaved differently than they normally do because they had moved on the line that goes to their stress number and they were using behavior from another number. So that in some ways addresses the complexity and the wisdom of the Enneagram and it also addresses the reality that it is deep, valuable wisdom that is uh, dynamic and not static that can't be reduced to... A party game. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Wholeheartedly. I love that because it goes past just, you know, oh, here's the types of all the characters from Friends or whatever and into like, okay, what do we do with this? How does it help us to understand different situations, different contexts, right? And and moves, again, beyond kind of just like, can we sort people maybe, yeah. right? So something that you you offer in uh, the journey toward wholeness, right? The, the book from, I think it was 2021, right? Uh, is a closer look at at the stances, those three stances, can you die? You started, you're like ahead of us, which is great. You're just rolling through the things that, that we have. So I love that. But can you uh, tell us a little bit about those three stances and then uh, uh, maybe the the soul work or the, the work that, that you're calling for us to do using some of that information? Sure. I want to start by saying that I think stances are where the magic is, but mm. you can't, you can't start there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, if you don't know that you know that you know your number, then skipping to stances won't serve you well either. I agree. Yep. So in the book, the third book, The Journey Toward Wholeness, I start by talking about triads because you have to learn to manage your dominant center. So twos, threes, and fours, feeling dominant, five, six, seven, thinking dominant, eight, nine, one, doing dominant. If you can't manage that, then you can't effectively do stance work. And it's a cultural challenge for us to do stance work because we're accustomed to making things happen. And we're accustomed to getting rid of things that we don't like. And in Enneagram work, you can't push down triads in order to get to stances you have to raise up stances hmm. in order to have balance. That's right. Yep. So twos, threes, and fours who are f feeling dominant each have one number in each stance, as do five, sixes, and sevens, as do eights, nines, and ones, which is another thing that tells you that the Enneagram is mystical or magical in its way. There is so much order in the Enneagram, and there's so much work around threes. The unsung heroes of Enneagram work, as far as I'm concerned, are Hurley and Donson, mm. and they're the people who made stances easy, easy for me to grasp and begin to work with and try to understand and then expand how people learn about them and what people think about them. And in that reality, um, 
ones, twos, and sixes make up the dependent stance, and that means that they're dependent on other people for how they see themselves. They've given their power away to others, and they rely on feedback, and they their orientation to time is the present moment, and so it's hard for them to have a plan. It's hard for them to stick to what's in their calendar because they allow things to change how they're finding their way in the world. There are two sides to that gift as well. And they're all thinking repressed, and that makes people squirm, and they think, oh, that can't possibly be true because I'm one of these three numbers, and I think all the time. And I will grant you that you do think all the time, but your thinking lacks balance, and it's not productive thinking. So for ones, uh, ones have an inner critic that they have internal dialogue with all the time. And it starts when they're very young and the critic is always negative, 100% of the time. So it's not like the self-talk that the rest of us have. It's like having a bully in your head that tells you how terrible you are and you have to argue with them. And they count all that internal dialogue as thinking. Twos think all the time. I, You know, we do, right? Yes, we do. And on a call uh, of twos. Actually, we're all, yeah, we, we all identify. Well, that. the problem that we all have is that we do think all the time about relationships. That's right. Yeah. And there are just other things that need to be thought about, frankly. And um, fours, I mean, I'm sorry, sixes uh, are thinking about that worst case scenario that I talked to you about. And about how they're going to handle things. So they're managing their thinking around fear. And fear is determining their next step and their next step and their next step, which is not productive. And they don't trust themselves. So all of those numbers have to bring up thinking. And if we move it over and talk about it in terms of spiritual growth or spiritual practice, our tendency with a spiritual director would be to choose a practice that involves feeling and doing and really give ourselves to those practices and not to practices that require thinking. So one of the things that I challenge ones to do as a spiritual practice is to um, read somebody they disagree with. One of the things I encourage twos to do in terms of a spiritual practice is to be very mindful and thoughtful of who they reach out to and decide they're going to help. So since y'all are both twos, I'll expand on that a little bit and mm. just ex- tell you that I, um, in order to manage my life as my platform got bigger and bigger, I realized I was going to have to stop helping everybody, even though it feels really good. And I didn't quite know how to do that. And so I came up with three questions that I ask myself as I move towards somebody. And the first one is, why am I moving toward this other person? The second one is, um, what, if anything, do I expect to get in return? And the third one is, does the other person even want my help? Ooh, that and then are good. Yeah, yeah, they're hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they work. Yeah. I've I've been living with those probably 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And then the overarching question of all three is what is mine to do? So I have to actually pause you right there because I found, going back to you talking about coming to Baylor, I found my copy that I got from you in February of 2017 of this book. And I want to read to you what you wrote in the inside cover to me, Susan. Okay. It says, for Holly... The question is, quote, what is mine to do? I hope my work here will help you answer the question. Blessings on the journey. That's what you wrote to me. And I have like kept that. It is. It is the most important question. What are you, For the record, what are you about to I have heard yeah. Holly use that phrase. Repeat anybody that listened. I you, you go back through the show. You'll hear Holly talk about trying to discern like what is mine to do yep. repeatedly. Yep. I've. In my brain, that is being said in Holly's voice, but turns out maybe that's actually. Yes. No, that was, that was a pivotal moment for me when you taught that over in at Baylor in the Bobo, that built that little spiritual building. 
And when you wrote that down, like I really put that on as a filter that I really needed to be thinking of as I move through the day. So, hmm. so I hope anyone who identifies with it too and is listening to what Suzanne is saying, please pocket that question and hold on to it. I'm going to cut that audio clip of her reading those questions and just set it as just an alarm on my it, phone. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. It's, um, I, I would say it's the only reason I'm still able to do the work I'm doing and travel at 72. Yes. Is because I started asking that question a long time ago. Yes. And it's kind of hurt. It, it, it's hurtful in the beginning uh, because you realize that you did a lot of things that weren't yours to do. And then it's a challenge for us as twos because people don't like to have us say, no, that's not mine to do. I know. And we don't like hearing that when people yeah, are it's tricky. us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's tricky. Yep. But uh, to, is that one, two, six? Did we get all three? Yes, you got them. Yep. Yep. The, the, I do want to just say about sixes. It makes me very sad that they doubt themselves because we trust them. They just don't trust themselves. And they're the, they're the fabric that's holding together lots of the groups of people and organizations that we belong to. So yeah, I'm, yep. I'm a, I'm a cheerleader for sixes. Hmm. Um, all right, three sevens and eights are uh, called the aggressive stance, and that's in part because they're feeling repressed. Um, and, you know, orientation of time is really important, and it doesn't get talked about much. And orientation, remember, uh, I've already said it, but remember, for ones, twos, and sixes to the present moment. For three sevens and eights, orientation of time is the future. And that's what they're tethered to, is what hasn't happened yet. And what they're planning to do. And uh, they're all feeling repressed. They all accomplish a lot. They struggle with relationships. And they generally would say to themselves and to others that the reason they're successful in positions of leadership is because they're feeling repressed. And that's inaccurate. And yet, they get stuff done. It's just that they leave people in their wake who have been hurt by a lack of opportunity to have a say or participate or some of those things. Um, Nadia Boltz-Weber is a good friend of mine, and uh, when she turned 50, I had her on my podcast, and she's an eight. And I said, so what's the Enneagram teaching you at 50? And she said, it's showing me the destruction in the wake of my eightness. Oof. And I'll never forget that line. And yeah. she's a gentle, gentle soul. Um, it's hard. It's very difficult for these three numbers to accept that they're feeling repressed. And I'm afraid I'm going to forget to say this, so I'm going to say it now, and then I'm going to talk about being feeling repressed. And that is you can't change what you can't name. Mm-hmm. And the Enneagram really helps you name the things that you need to change. And then it helps you show you, it helps show you how, and then it helps motivate you to make the change. It's, it's really quite something. So threes are feeling repressed in that they take in information with feelings, but they don't use feelings to process that information. So they just set feelings aside. And that makes them very good. Corporate America loves threes. They are fast and they're future-oriented and they are excited about getting stuff done and they're willing to skip steps to get there and um, they make things happen. And there are people who get hurt along the way. And it's because they don't use feelings to make sense of information they take in from the culture. Sevens can hardly believe that I say they're feeling repressed. And that's because they have a half range of feelings that Mm. are very strong. The key is that it's a half range of feelings. And that half range is the happy half. And that leaves um, the darker side and the sad half of feelings um, out. And that's not good. And once I can teach them that there's richness in the other side, which is why... 
those Baylor students were coming up to me asking me about Joan of Arc and being burned at the mm-hmm. stake mm-hmm. It is because they had figured that out and were willing to look at something beyond just this happy range of feelings. And uh, eights are passionate, very, very passionate. And they count passion as every feeling. And it isn't every feeling and it can't be mm-hmm. every feeling. Mm-hmm. And so they have to learn to bring up more tender feelings, which all three numbers find that it makes them feel very vulnerable. Uh, mm-hmm. And all three numbers orientation to time is the future. All right. Uh, three, seven, four, fives and nines are the withdrawing stance. And uh, that means their orientation to time is the past. And they are doing repressed. And they all are doing, you know, all of us are feeling who are in the other triad, you know, and and stances. We, we have all three centers. It's how we use them and how we balance them that matters. Right, yes. And there's a lack of balance in terms of fours, fives, and nines in doing. So fours do things. They chase shiny things and they do what they love to do and they add a lot of texture to the world and color and poetry and writing and art and beautiful things and they have very difficult time getting the basic stuff done every day that has to be done taking out the trash going to the grocery store paying the bills doing the laundry it's all so ho-hum for them it's very very hard Fives plan to do more than they do, and they count their planning as doing. So when they have a project they want to work on, they just start planning for it, and they plan and plan and plan and plan. And it takes a lot to get them moved into doing the things that they're planning on. And nines are both doing dominant and doing repressed, and that means that they uh, walk into a room and know what needs to be done, and they generally have a response of, you know, somebody should handle that, but it doesn't occur to them that it should be them. And they're always doing something, and occasionally it's the right thing. Frequently it's not. And with an orientation of time in the past, it's a very safe place for them because whatever's going to happen has already happened. And so they um, just stay tethered there. Now, I don't think I said uh, what, the aggressive stance needs to do one example. There are many, but one example for the whole stance of something they could do as a spiritual practice is that they have to do something that engages with feelings that threes are not going to restructure and reorganize that sevens are not going to evaluate the systems and show where they overlap. And that, Eights are not going to take over and try to turn what is into something better before they have a grasp of the whole picture. And those are all the ways that they avoid feelings. So they would need to work at a homeless shelter or um, maybe volunteer at a children's hospital. Um, They might want to. work at a uh, as a volunteer at a soup kitchen where they encounter uh, parts of life that demand feelings and where they're not in charge so they can't get rid of their feelings by planning on something to do to make things better. Ooh, that's, that's good. And in, in terms of doing... Fours, fives, and nines have to plan their doing for the day and for the future, and then they have to find motivation to get it done. And it's hard. It's very difficult based on how they see for them to do that. So I'll give you one example of how Joe brought up doing because he's a nine. For all of our years, we've been married almost 36 years, and there's just a list always at our house. You know, we have four children and now we have four children who live here with their spouses and nine grandchildren. 
and another one or two on the way. So we're, we're covered up with the people we love the most. And there's always a list on the bar in the kitchen of things that need to be done. And before COVID, I was traveling an awful lot and I wanted to teach the Enneagram and I wanted it taught by somebody who knew what they were doing. And I, I do. And, um, LTM was growing and I, yeah, it was a good time for me, but it was a lot of travel and I'm head over heels in love with Joe to Mm. this very minute. I love that. And I want to be with him and being away from him, particularly when it usually was on weekends and he's a pastor and I wasn't there. It was, it was hard for us. And Joe chose to honor my struggle with being away by doing the things on our to-do list while I was traveling and on the road. And that motivation served him enough to get all the little projects done. And without motivation, it's just really difficult for fours, fives, and nine to do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely hear you on that. I love how you've walked us around with each of the different um, stances and even just talking about the nine. I mean, I've heard you, you and Joe talk before my husband identifies as with type nine as well. And so the ways that I've heard y'all talk has felt very familiar and comforting and a sense of like, I, we walk a similar journey with that wrestle between those, just with each of the numbers. I mean, I think thinking through again, how the Enneagram, I would say at least for my husband and I, how helpful it has been in understanding one another and how to support one another with elevating the things that we need to elevate and extending grace for the things Mm -hmm. that we're like, oh, you know, as a two, I can go, 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 go with all these things to help other people. Um, but like, you know, Corey is, as a nine, like there's a, there's a limit uh, on his energy level. And so even when you were saying like nines will walk into the room and see the things that need to be done and be like, that would be nice if that got done. And the two walks in the room and is like, well, let me do all the, the things right now to make it easier for everybody else. Like, you know, you can see again where the Enneagram is so helpful with creating language for those experiences. So it's, it's fascinating yeah. in relationships too that you can say things using Enneagram number that you can't say using somebody's name. Yeah. It's just astonishing how you can kind of put it, the conversation over there where we're talking about a, a two and an eight or a two and a six instead of me talking to. It's, it's mystical. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely takes it off of that sense of like it being in a personal, it takes it off of being personal, but more like there are just these structures about how you see the world and move through the world that, you know, it's so helpful. Yeah. You know, when I, I was the founding executive director of shared housing here in Dallas and, um, it's a nonprofit that is designed to help people stay in their homes by matching them with people who need a place to live. And at the same time, I was working with the elderly poor. And I didn't know the Enneagram then, and I would have done so many things differently if I had. I I would have mm-hmm. known how to handle their anger. Um, you know, the elderly poor are angry, and I would be too. And it has to be addressed in different ways. And um, I, I would have been more honoring of the way they wanted to do things instead of the way I wanted to do things on their behalf. I, it, I would have been a better social worker if I'd known it. Yeah. No, I hear you. I totally hmm. hear you. Well, I um, I do want to create just a tiny space at least for you to talk a little bit about life in the Trinity ministry. I know there is just such good work that y'all are doing with that ministry. And so to the degree that you'd like to share and tell us a bit about that organization, I'd love for you to, to 
to share that, but also tell us a bit about your hope for the work that you are doing through Life in the Trinity ministry. Okay. Well, Joe and I started it in the Catholic Church. Actually, Father Stabile and I started it in the Catholic (laughs) Church. And when he left the priesthood, he brought it with him. And our thing started out to, to be really about understanding difference and civility. We, we wanted to make the world a kinder, better informed place. And in doing that work, we recognized that it is much easier to build an organization over against a common enemy than it is to build an organization based on the gospel. People cohere very quickly around a common enemy. And it takes a long time to build on something like integrity and honesty and equality. And uh, that's just reality. And I think that's speaks in part to some of what we're experiencing right now with all of the duality that is in our world. It's astonishing to me that we are divided into so many camps and that we're so mean to one another. And I think it's because we don't have any tools. We collectively don't have any tools to do it differently, and Joe and I are trying to offer those tools. It's grown a lot. Uh, We're a no-debt ministry. So everything we've done over the almost 38 years is no debt. And so we saved money to build it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. We we built the Micah Center with cash. Um, And we had a small uh, center before this one that we paid cash for when we bought it. So Hmm. that has meant that we had to move slowly. And that's probably been good looking back, but it was frustrating looking forward. And we're doing a lot of good work here now. Joe and I named Life in the Trinity Ministry based on the Trinity, and we were so mindful that we didn't want it to be named after us. You know, we didn't want the Joe and Sue's show, so we (laughs) avoided that at all costs. And our hope is that some of the young people who work with and around and for us will be able to continue to do work for Life in the Trinity Ministry when Joe and I are no longer working. And that's a very intentional thing that requires years of working toward that. Um, You can't, it's hard to start that late because you have to work toward it. So um, Joel here at the Micah Center leads study groups, usually two or three, uh, every year using the study guides from uh, the three books that I wrote. And uh, we now have uh, cohorts. I had an apprentice program for a while where I had a group of people who met with me four times a year for three years. And we were having to turn away so many people who wanted to go deeper, we changed that, and I now have a cohort program, and we've extended that. So I teach an Enneagram cohort, which is four times uh, a year for a year, uh, Thursday through Saturday. And uh, Joe and a friend of ours, Hunter Mobley, who uh, is the um, former executive pastor of Christ Church, and he is now working for a new organization. I'm not sure I'm Uh, it's appropriate for me to talk about that quite yet. So, um, but he, um, is quite something and he was one of my apprentices. And so he's the perfect bridge between Joe and me because he has the Enneagram piece and he has the pastoral piece. And he teaches the contemplative cohort with Joe and, uh, he does the Enneagram piece for that. And Joe does the contemplative. I started a new cohort this year with Dr. Andy Stoker, who is a family systems scholar, and he and I are teaching Enneagram and family systems. And I think the information about this will go up in the next couple of days, but 
Joe and I are starting a new cohort together that's going to start in September, and we're doing uh, the Enneagram and deconstruction and reconstruction. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So we have all four of those uh, cohorts going, all of Joel's study groups going. We have the Enneagram Journey podcast, which we love and love podcasting. And we teach workshops here. We do a big workshop in March and a big one in August. And we do some recorded things in between because we intentionally only seat about 40, 40, 42 people at tables here in the center. And we're super excited about the August event. Information will go up probably within the next two or three weeks about that. And it's very connected to some of the things we've talked about today, but it's new, a new way of looking at things. Uh, all Enneagram, we're real excited about that. And um, a couple of other things I don't think I, I'm ready quite yet to talk about, but they're big and exciting. So that's mm. kind of where <laughs> we are. That's awesome. Well, there's just so much good work. We will definitely point folks to your website in a moment, but hopefully like hearing all of that good work that's happening. And I'll say too, the Micah Center is beautiful. Like I'm Thank so you. grateful. I've had a few times to go up there and learn and and then to speak with you. And it just, it's a beautiful space on top of the good work that's happening. So. Thank you. It's yeah. a, it's very interesting to me, I guess, I guess it's in the walls. I don't know, but people automatically feel safe when they walk in here. Hmm. Yes. Holly, is that what you felt? That is exactly what I yeah. felt. It feels like a – I mean, I think I had gone up there once or twice before to listen to you and Joe speak, and then Joe led us through a centering prayer practice. But then when I came back up for the podcast episode, it just kind of feels like another home. Like it's just – it just feels homey and safe. and. But I think that's – that is – you know, that's – it based on intentionality of the work that you and Joe and Joel and so many others have really done to pour into that space to make it feel so safe and homey. So, yeah, yeah. it, it, it really is. One thing I forgot to mention is our, I did mention that our daughter, daughter, Joey, she has her own business now, but she is using the Enneagram in corporate America very successfully and our mm. son-in-law, Billy, gets his doctorate this week in wow. education. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. And he uh, wrote it about the Enneagram. He wrote his dissertation. Uh, I think they call it a treatise for the education one about the Enneagram in education. Oh, my wow. gosh. That's so good. And they uh, do Enneagram in parenting. And they're both super good at that. So, yeah, mm. it's a there's a lot going on. And feels right and joe is 75 and i'm 72 <laughs> and so we're uh joel is working hard to take care of us so that we do the right things with the time that we have because even though joe's a retired pastor in the united methodist church he's on staff at first united methodist downtown Dallas yeah, and he, you know, he can't quit. Uh, we, so far <laughs> we can't quit. No. Well, I am grateful for the work that, you know, that you are doing. And while remembering that question of deciding what is yours to do in the midst of all of the wonderful opportunities and, um, and I do hope that our listeners will go check out because there's so much that you offer both in the Dallas area, but also for those who aren't in the Dallas area um, to be able to learn. So with that, listener, I, I would love to invite you to go check out um, Suzanne's website at SuzanneStabile.com. She also has a podcast called The Enneagram Journey that you can check out. You can also check out Life in the Trinity Ministries website, which again, we'll have links to each of these things within the show notes. You can find her on Instagram or Twitter at Suzanne Stabile, and she's on Facebook as well. 
Uh, we'll add links to each of the books that we mentioned within the show notes, and you can pick them up wherever you buy your books. And I want to mention that, as Suzanne just kind of nodded to, there are companion guides for each of these books as well. Um, and again, those three books are The Road Back to You, The Path Between Us, and The Journey Toward Wholeness. Uh, you can connect with CXMH at cxmhpodcast.com or on any social media at cxmhpodcast. You can connect with Robert at robert-4.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Robert4. Um, you can connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or same social media websites at hollyoxhandler. Um, Suzanne, thank you again so very much for joining yeah. us today for your wisdom, your generosity, your presence. It really was a gift to get to be here with you. Yeah. And yeah, I would love if you have any closing thoughts for our listeners or anything you want to leave them with as we wrap up this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me, number one. Robert, you and I are going to have to figure out a different way to get to know each other because we sure didn't get it figured out during this. You know me <laughs> and I don't know you. And that's not going to work for me. Okay. Yeah, so we'll we're going to have to back. work on yeah. that. All right. And I think the thing I would want to offer all of us to think about actually is the children. My grandchildren range, range in age from 17 to 4. Um, our son, BJ, James, and his husband, Devin, are adopting uh, one or two children out of the foster care system. And um, here in the area where we live right now, just in Tarrant County, which is where Fort Worth is, uh, there are 1,600 children waiting for foster care. And children are now having to go to school worried about gun violence and all the things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we kept the image of a child that we love and care about in our mind as we go through the day, if we would make decisions with a little more caution and a little more care. I hope we would. Mm. And I hope we can find a way to look forward instead of looking at each other, to measure who we can be instead of looking at each other and uh, measuring each other up, and to work toward becoming you two and me and people who, who do what we do. Look toward how did our work today give people tools to make changes in their lives because I fall into the trap of thinking that people should change things without honoring how many tools I have to work with to try to be a better person and how few tools many, most people have. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. And I'm hopeful. I, I think human beings are by their very nature good. And I'm hopeful. So I'm going to close with this. Uh, it's an old, old quote. And it's from Richard Foster, who is a Quaker, who uh, was the founder of Renovare and wrote some very good books on spiritual practices. And um, maybe 30 years ago, he said, the new tools of the devil are muchness, are noise and crowds, and hurry and muchness and manyness. Noise and crowds and hurry and muchness and manyness. And I would add now to his quote, technology. And I want to say that I'm, I'm not sure about this talk about the devil. Like I don't, I don't really understand that. I don't know what it means. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't talk about it. I, I don't. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to not quote people appropriately right right so the, now that i have given him credit for the quote the way he said it i would like to say that i think the things that are keeping us in dualistic thinking and dualistic living 
rather than non-dualistic thinking and non-dualistic living are muchness and manyness and noise and crowds and hurry and technology. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I love the idea that you'll be struggling with me. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 